If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me, if you would, to the book of Daniel chapter 1 and uh, hold your spot there. Daniel chapter 1 is where we're going to be continuing in a series called Hero. And uh, we've been in this now for, uh, since before the summer, uh, starting Easter Sunday, actually. And uh, we'll be wrapping it up in the next couple of weeks or so, uh, two or three weeks from now. But uh, it's been a good series, hopefully for you it's been beneficial, hopefully it's challenged you as well. And the whole premise of it is that we're just looking at how God is the ultimate hero behind every story we read of, of in the Bible where there's a victory that takes place. That's God's victory. And, uh, and at the same time, he also desires to be the hero in our stories also. Uh, the flip side of that is that you have an opportunity to be a hero to someone else, not for your credit or your glory, but when you let him use you and your life to influence and impact another person. So that's what we've been looking at in this series. Today, we're going to add to it. We're going to roll one other uh, uh, character from scripture into it, look at the quality that comes out of their life as well at the same time. And uh, Hopefully it'll be, it'll be something that God will truly, truly use in your life. You're probably familiar with the phrase that says, a hill to die on. You know, there are times that I roll that phrase out from time to time. You know, that there are certain things in our lives that we look at and that we, we understand are hills to die on. Uh, the, the definition of that is, is fairly simple. Uh, a hill to die on is an issue to pursue with wholehearted conviction or single-minded focus with little or no regard to the cost. Whenever you say, this is a hill for me to die on, what you're saying is, this is an issue where I need to plant my feet and I need to square my shoulders and I'm willing to stand there no matter what the cost is. It's not a preference, it is a conviction and everybody in this room, I think, has something that you would say is a hill to die on. The question is, is it the right hill? Many times in people's lives, they'll say they have certain hills on which they're willing to die, certain convictions, but they're just revealed to be a simple, a simple preference in their life. For example, you take a so-called patriot of a country that says, you know what, this is my country, and I'm, my, my country is a hill on which I'm willing to die, and yet at some point uh, uh, you know, in, in, the, uh, in their lives, they end up selling out to their country. Let's just say they become a spy to an, an enemy nation, and ultimately their comment that that this is my country and this is a hill on which I'll die was nothing more than just a preference. It wasn't a conviction at all. You think about a business person who says, you know what, honesty and integrity, that's a hill to die on for me. That's the way I do business. That's the way I live my life until their profit is ultimately threatened. And what they begin to do is maybe shade the deals just a little bit to some degree, maybe step into the arena of the unethical. And what they've revealed there is that honesty and integrity are not hills on which to die. They're not convictions. They're just preferences. A lot of times churches can be guilty of this as well, right? It's real easy for a church to say, you know what, our doors are open to anyone. We're, well, we're welcoming of anyone that comes through those doors to hear the message of the gospel. And often what happens, sadly, is that for some of the churches that make that comment, this is a hill to die on. We're welcoming of everyone. What that often means is it's, it, it, we're welcoming of those who look like us and act like us and vote like us and live the same lifestyle as we do, right? But if you don't look like us or sound like us or vote like us or live the same lifestyle that we do, then I'm not quite sure there's going to be room for you in this church. That's what many churches believe. Certainly, hopefully, not this one, right? And what they, what they ultimately reveal is that the, the, the statement, we are welcoming of everyone, is not a hill to die on. It's not a conviction. It's just a preference. 
And on the flip side of that as well, it can be easy for a Christian or for a church to say, you know what, we stand on truth. That's what we do. Truth is a hill to die on until the, 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 the noise of the culture or the pressure from outside the church ultimately gets so loud or so strong that often what can happen is a Christian or a church itself can begin to cave to the preferences of the culture, cave in on truth, and ultimately reveal that truth was not a hill to die on. It wasn't a conviction at all it was just a preference you know whenever we move through this series what we've seen is that there have been numerous people who've ultimately revealed themselves to be heroes in a number of different ways for a number of different reasons today we're going to roll one more figure into this conversation of what it means to be a hero and to let God be the ultimate hero through us and his name is Daniel and as we look at Daniel's story in the book of Daniel, you've turned to Daniel chapter one. We're gonna start there. We're gonna move through another part of that same book. But what we see in Daniel's life is that he demonstrated a certain hero quality, right? That, that marked him for who he was. And that quality was the quality of honoring God. He was one who planted his feet. He was one that, for whom uh, honoring God was a hill literally to be willing to die on. It was not a preference. It was a conviction in his life. Daniel was one who would square his feet against the culture. He would stand for what was true. He would stand for what was right. He would stand for God, and he demonstrated the conviction of that. And for us, if we're going to stand for conviction or st stand for truth in our lives, if we're going to honor God through the lives that he's given us, let me just say, it's going to require you to identify uh, not just the things that are going to pull you away from that but to be willing to say this is a hill that I'm going to die on I'm going to honor God regardless of the cost right for students that unpacks in in, in some ways as it relates maybe to purity, as it relates to uh, uh, living out their faith in a fallen world, as it relates to priorities, as it, as it relates to, to how they spend their time, as it relates to how they, uh, how they present themselves, how they, how they manage their own bodies, right? For us as adults, all of those apply, plus some other ones as well. Right? You live in a workplace where your conviction probably comes under attack fairly frequently. You live in a world where your convictions obviously come under attack often right and so for us the only way for us to be able to live a life truly of conviction is to settle up front before the cost ever comes that I'm going to live ultimately to honor God that's how I want to do it I want to live I want to honor God in my marriage I want to honor God in my relationships I want to honor God in how I handle myself I want to honor God in my decisions I want to honor God in my finances I want to honor God when nobody is looking right I want to live a life that ultimately honors him and this culture is going to come against that over and over and over and over and over it's the way the world operates. And so it's a decision that you've got to make, a decision that I have to make, whether we are going to plant our feet and square our shoulders and honor God through the lives that he's given us or whether we're going to just treat that as simply a preference. Whenever we look in Daniel's story, I think he is a great, great, great example of how that plays out. Before we unpack his story, however, I want to share with you just a, a simple statement that I came across years ago I didn't make it up it came from another speaker a fellow named Andy Stanley that some of you are familiar with and I think it applies really really well to Daniel's story and the statement is this that we have to come to place where we're willing to choose many times to choose the hard right over the easy wrong 
right? And if we're gonna live a life that honors God, if we're gonna live a life that puts him on display, live a life not marked by preference, but to where we truly walk by conviction that relates to God's truth, if we're gonna do that, there are gonna be numerous times in our life where we're gonna have to choose the hard right over the easy wrong. And the easy wrong is always gonna present itself. It's always gonna come running right up to the point of decision and say, whoa, here I am, here's an easy out, here's an easy wrong, choose this, right? But if you're gonna live a life that honors God, constantly at the point of, of decision, you're gonna to have to make the choice to choose what's often the hardest decision, and that's to do what's ultimately right. Daniel, we read of in scripture in a book that bears his name. The, the first part of his book is somewhat of a narrative, the first six chapters or so. I mean, when you read through the first six chapters of Daniel, it's like reading a novel, it's just all true. And when you read through it, it just sort of flows really well. You're introduced to Daniel, you're introduced to three of his friends that we're gonna see here in just a second. You're introduced to, 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 to the culture they lived in. And those first six chapters really just follow kind of a narrative. The last portion of the book, the last half of the book is more prophetic in nature. Some of you may be familiar more with that than Daniel's own personal life story. Regardless, we're gonna look at, at, at some of the decisions that Daniel made, one in particular, that marked him for who he was, and it shows him to ultimately be a hero because he lived a life of conviction. He lived a life identifying the hill on which he was willing to die, and it would come at great cost to him. So who was Daniel exactly? Daniel was a Jew by heritage. He was a, a part of the uh, the, the Jewish community, the Jewish heritage. He lived in, uh, well, in 605 BC, he was taken off by the Babylonians into captivity. Israel would face two periods in their history where they would be taken off into captivity because of their sin. The first was in 721 BC when Israel, God's people to the north, because of their apostasy, because of their false worship, God had tried to reach them through the prophets, they wouldn't listen, and so he disciplined them, Israel, 721 BC, by allowing them and leading them to be taken off by the enemy nation of Assyria. Well, about 150 years later, roughly, Judah, God's people to the south, didn't really learn a whole lot from Israel's lesson. They followed the same path, apostasy, false worship, all of those same things, rampant sin. They were unrepentant, wouldn't listen to the prophets. And so the time came for Judah to be taken off into captivity. This would be to the Babylonians, the world leader at that time. Daniel would be part of the first group to be taken out into exile, taken out into captivity. There would be three different deportations, if you want to say that. 605 BC was the first. That's when Daniel was drug out of his homeland, taken off to Babylon. That, those deportations would end about 19 years later, 586 BC, when Jerusalem would fall and uh, virtually the majority, not all, but the majority of the people of Judah would be living in exile in Babylon. Daniel was young whenever he was taken off as captive to Babylon. He was, he was many would say, probably a teenager in his, uh, in his age. And we read how all this ultimately went down beginning in Daniel chapter 1. Let's move down and let's begin in verse 3. And then we're going to roll a principle into this once we read this passage. Daniel chapter 1, verse 3. Remember, the whole overarching theme of this is living a life that honors God, living a life not of preference, but of conviction. So it says, Daniel 1, verse 3, it says, And the king, <clears throat> this would be Nebuchadnezzar, ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence and every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. 
And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. There's a principle that comes out of that chapter, or from the first part of this book in chapter 1, that we're going to begin to see unfolding throughout the next five chapters ahead. And the principle is this principle that is still in play today. And, and, and I hope for you that you understand this because we see it so often in our culture. The principle is this, that our culture consistently aims to disconnect the follower of Jesus ultimately from their spiritual foundation. This culture in which we live, I'm telling you, this world in which we live, this fallen world that doesn't honor God, that doesn't seek to apply and walk in his truth, that culture, right, in which we live, we're all immersed, right? We're like fish swimming in that goldfish bowl, right? That's the culture in which we swim. That's the culture in which we live. The culture consistently aims to disconnect the follower of Jesus ultimately from their spiritual foundations. Now, how did this happen for Daniel? You're going to see it in a couple of ways. Earlier in that, in that passage, You'll see that the king, in verse 5, appointed for them to eat a certain ration of the king's choice food. Now, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would reject this, right? They had their reasons for rejecting this. There were certain dietary laws that they, as Jews, would have followed. And so they chose to reject that. They asked permission to do it, and, uh, and God honored that decision. But it's in verse 7 that we see perhaps the biggest attempt to ultimately squeeze Daniel into the mold of Babylon, to squeeze them into the mold of this godless culture when it says that they were assigned new names literally new names Daniel's name meant God is my judge the new name that he was given Belteshazzar means may Bel protect his life Bel being a false god that the Babylonians worship it was an attempt to disjoin to disconnect to to, to separate Daniel from his spiritual heritage we're going to feed you new food we're going to give you new clothes we're going to teach you new language we're going to teach you new culture and we're going to give you a brand new name right and this is going to ultimately look to disassociate you from your spiritual heritage as the people of God and, and, and I'm saying I mean our world does exactly the same thing as well now I'm not one of those conspiracy theorists you know where the devil is behind every rock but listen you you have to be blind to see that in this world there is a certain agenda to some degree from the enemy himself right to try to silence and to try to water down and to try to disconnect believers from a willingness to stand for their faith. It's going to cost you if you stand for your faith in this world. It's going to cost you, and it may cost you more than you could ever have imagined. Years would pass. Daniel would ultimately, obviously, grow in age. Babylon would be supplanted by the Persians as the world leader. Nebuchadnezzar would no longer be in 
leadership now under a new kingdom and a new authority in the world, uh, there would be a leader by the name of Darius who would reign. He would reign for about two years, roughly, <clears throat> from 538 B.C. to 536 B.C. In that period of time, Daniel would grow in age to the point to where when we get to Daniel 6, if you will turn there with me, in Daniel 6, <clears throat> we find that Daniel is no longer a teenager living in the land of Babylon he is now living in that same area, now under the reign of the Persians, essentially, and he is in his mid to late 60s. Decades have passed when Daniel 6 picks up the story. And so let's jump in here, Daniel chapter 6. Let's begin in verse 1. It says, It seemed good to Darius. Again, Darius is this Medo-Persian ruler. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 Satraps. Satraps would be like a provincial governor to, to some degree. He appointed 120 satraps over the kingdom that they should be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one. That these satraps, these provincial governors, might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Daniel is now in his mid to late 60s. And throughout the decades since we first were introduced to him in Daniel chapter 1, he has lived a life consistently of honoring God. He has lived a life consistently in a fallen culture, resisting the pull of the culture. The pull of that culture is like an undertow. When you're out at the beach and you're, you go out just to kind of feel the water, just to float around a little bit, and, and you go in, lined up with your chair, and in 10 minutes you've drifted 50 yards down the beach, right? It's just this constant undertow, this pull that you didn't even feel, that you didn't even notice. That was the culture that Daniel lived in, constantly trying to disassociate him from his spiritual upbringing, from his foundations, constantly pulling him, trying to from, from a devotion to God. And through the decades, he consistently planted his feet, squared his shoulders, lived a life of conviction because honoring God was a hill to die on. And he had done it so well that the very king himself of this pagan country, right, this pagan empire, the Persian empire, had so recognized that his life was a life of integrity, his life was a life that was different, that he had not only ascended into the top three, but there was a plan, it tells us, in verse 3, chapter 6, for him to ultimately be appointed over the entire kingdom. <clears throat> verse 4, then the commissioners and the satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. They were jealous, right? He was ascending to a position that they would have preferred. They look at how he handled himself in his workplace, in his government affairs. That's where they start first. They try to find a way to accuse him there, but it says in verse 4, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. See, Daniel was not one who had these different compartments to his life. He didn't have his work compartment and then his finance compartment and then his relationships compartment and then his what I do when nobody's looking compartment and then his weekend compartment and then, all, you know, and then finally there was the spiritual compartment. That's not the way Daniel operated. The whole big box was a compartment laid honor to God, right? His life was lived in surrender to God. And within that whole big box, he had a finance compartment, a relationships compartment, and a what I do when no one's looking compartment. That's the way his life operated, but it was all under the umbrella of living life to God's glory. 
And he did it so well that it says that those who were jealous of him ultimately looked to see, is there anything in his life that we can find that's going to be able to allow us to pin something on his life? And it says they couldn't find anything. Verse 5, then these men said, we shall not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. And then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king, and they spoke to him as follows. They, they had this plan, right? They were going to pull this nice little trick here. They said, King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the high officials, the governors, we've consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. And therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. This is similar to what happened in the book of Esther, if you remember that story from a few weeks ago in this series. Whenever King Darius would put into decree any decision or injunction, it was firm. It was irrevocable. So the enemies of Daniel who couldn't find anything to pin on him in his work life, in his personal life, in his dealings with people, chose to come at him from the direction of his commitment to God. They taught the king into saying, hey, hey, king, listen, I mean, you're the king, you're the ruler. Why don't we make a petition? Why don't we make a law that for the next 30 days, uh, no one can pray to anyone but you, right? And if they do, they're going to be thrown into the lion's den. Well, the king, I'm sure, like probably most world leaders, was a little bit full of himself, I'm sure. He's like, hey, that sounds like a great idea. And so he consents, it's put into, the, the decree is formalized, and now Daniel has a decision to make. Look at what it says in verse 10. It says, Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. If this was not a hill to die on, honoring God for Daniel, he would have found the easy out, the easy wrong. The biggest probably would have been to talk himself into saying, you know what, I don't have to pray publicly for people to see me for the next 30 days. After all, I, all I have to do is just get through this for 30 days and then I can go right back to what I was doing before. In fact, it could have crossed Daniel's mind to look ahead 2,500 years into the future, right? And to see a group of Christians that would one day exist in this day and time and say, you know what, there are gonna be Christians that go a lot longer than 30 days without praying. So what's, it, what's the big deal for me? Why don't I just quiet myself? Why don't I just pray on the inside? Why don't I just pray behind closed doors? Why don't I just ultimately choose preference over conviction? 
But Daniel didn't do that because his worship of God was a hill to die on. It was not a preference to ultimately be embraced because it was easier. It was a conviction that he was willing to embrace no matter the cost. And it tells us something interesting in verse 10 it says when Daniel knew that the document was signed that's when he went as he always had done and he went and prayed facing towards Jerusalem as had been his practice he knew what he was getting himself into it's not as though Daniel mistakenly prayed and didn't know anything about a new law he knew what was going on he knew that it had been been decreed he knew that it was irrevocable and he knew the lion's den was going to ultimately be the reward for praying in this manner and he did it anyway and it said that it says that in verse 10 that he prayed with the windows open and that he continued kneeling as he had been doing previously he chose to go against the flow Man, for you and me, there is going to be competition in so many different ways in our lives. You already know this. You have competition in a lot of different arenas of your life. You have competition for your time. You only have 24 hours a day. That doesn't change. It's not as though you get an extra two hours on Fridays to get more done. You have 24 hours every single day of the week, every single week of the month, every single month of the year. 24 hours a day and you have so much competition for your time you've got work you've got certain uh, responsibilities around your home and with your family you've got uh, um, uh, responsibilities that compete for your time as it relates to maybe your health or your recreation whatever it may be the case you may have children you may have ball games to attend dance recitals to attend you may have all those different things that compete for your time and it's hard it's hard to keep all the plates spinning and there's a lot of balls in the air at one time for a lot of you I'm sure right that's the way it operates you've got competition for your time you've got competition for your dollars right you walk in any store you're going to see advertisements in the store when you leave the store you're going to see advertisements outside the store for other stores to go to right you've got competition for your dollars everybody wants a little bit of your paycheck the one store says hey come to me another you know product says hey come buy me right you've got all kinds of competition that you have to deal with You've got competition ultimately for your attention, right? You've got devices. I mean, you've got phones that you can, you can do more with your phone now than anyone would have ever imagined just a, just a few decades ago, right? So much competition for your time and for your attention and for your dollars. You, you've got competition for your vote, right? We're in the season now where you can't turn the TV on without there being another political advertisement, right? Competition for so many different things. But let me just tell you this. And I think you know this, but this is just a reminder to all of us that you, even though you face competition across so many different spectrums of your life, you will never, you will face competition like you've never known for ultimately the worship of your heart. And there will be things that will beckon your worship where the stakes are far higher than how you spend your time or how you spend your money or where you cast your vote. What are you going to worship in your life? And sometimes the evidence would say, you know what? What I worship is my own comfort, maybe for you. Maybe for you, sometimes the evidence of your life says, you know what? I, I, I'm going to worship my own advancement, my own accomplishments, my own, my own promotion, so to speak. I, I'm, I'm going to worship myself and my agenda, my desires. But what we see for Daniel, the illustration that he gives us, is that his life focus was to be lived in worship of God and no matter what it would cost him he was going to honor God no matter no matter what was decided by any governmental agency even in a land where he was living in exile he was going to honor God regardless of the cost Jesus would come along 550 years later give or take 
And he would begin to lay out what it would cost to follow him and what that looks like when following Jesus is a conviction, not a preference. John chapter 6, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to simply read this. John chapter 6, verse 53. Jesus gives us a word picture, not literal, but a word picture of what it means to follow him. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, a reference to himself, and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, Jesus is not promoting some cannibalistic religion here. He's not speaking uh, literally. He's saying, this is what it looks like to follow me, that you are going to have to consume me and be consumed by me. It's not just check this box on Sunday mornings from nine to noon. It's not just throw my name out there when it benefits you. You are going to have to be consumed by me, much like eating my flesh, drinking my blood. You're going to have to be consumed with me. That's what it's going to look like. And in John 6, verse 66, just a few verses later, it says, As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew, and they were not walking with him anymore. For too many, Jesus did not fit their plans. He was a preference, not a conviction. Jesus turned turned the, uh, uh, the fish and the loaves into food, keep my belly full. Man, that's great. I'll follow you anywhere. Jesus, require me to take up my cross and follow you thank you but I'm out preference not a conviction and for many followers of Jesus what often happens is when the consequences are too high or whenever the circumstances are too difficult they ultimately walk away at the point of cost or like Judas just go through the motions until it catches up with them so Daniel a man for whom honoring God was a hill to die on would be captured he would be detained and he would be thrown in the lion's den just like they said would happen back in Daniel chapter 6 we pick up in verse 16 it says then the king that's Darius gave orders and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den the king spoke and said to Daniel your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you remember Darius is he's he's not a godly king he he is he does not know God verse 17 a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing might be changed in regard to Daniel Then the king went off to his palace, and he spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. And the king arose at dawn at the break of day and went in haste to the lion's den. And when he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lion's? And then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. And also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. 
Now it's interesting because for Daniel, he was ultimately able to see God prove himself as the ultimate hero, right? Huge victory story. Daniel survived the lion's den. Kids sing about this song, you know, this story in VBS and little kids Sunday school all the time ever since, right? But it's not Daniel who's the ultimate hero. It's God who is the ultimate hero. You may be asking, so why is Daniel even considered a lesser hero at all? I mean, I mean, what's the big deal? He stood for God. He did what was right God delivered him how is Daniel any type of a like a a secondary hero at all in this story we'll look down in verse 25 Daniel chapter 6 then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples nations and men of every language who were living in the land may your peace abound now this is what Darius writes I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel for he is the living God and enduring forever and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed his dominion will be forever he delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions what happened was when Daniel this Old Testament character had ultimately through his life lived a that honored God when the stakes were the highest when it would cost him the most he didn't waver he proved that worship of God and honoring God was a conviction not a preference it was a hill on which to die and when he did that it was through his choice to honor God that this godless king saw God for maybe the very first time and recognized him for who he was man when you in your workplace when you feel the heat of this culture when you in your relationships feel the heat of this culture students when you in your lives feel the heat of this culture trying to pull you away from what you know is right pull you away separate you disassociate you disconnect you from your spiritual uh, roots in your relationship with Jesus whenever that happens and we plant our feet and we say that I am not wavering this is a hill on which to die I will honor God it will impact other people who watch you from a distance. In fact, I would be willing to say, I, I, I mean, all of the stuff that swirled just this week over the Roe v. Wade stuff, the whole issue, I mean, if you scroll through social media as I have, you look at all the comments and the vitriol and the, just the anger responses. I mean, it's a, it's a really simple, for the Christian community at least, it, it's, it's a five-second explanation. I mean, it's really simple. The reason so many Christians, not everyone, obviously, but the reason so many Christians count this as such a hill to die on is because of the conviction that that's life in the womb. I mean, that, that's why. It's a, that's a five-second explanation. It's because of the conviction. Rightly. I mean, the Scripture would even support that. Psalm 139 and, and even in the Gospels. It's a conviction that that's life there. And we don't have to be snarky and mean-spirited and angry. And, but to stand and proclaim the truth is going to cost. <laughs> it's going to cost. But it's, it's just one example of many in our culture where the culture goes one way, but honoring God is going to require you to swim upstream to go against the flow. And it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you dearly. You know, the, the argument, well, well, what about women's rights? What about human rights? It's, to me, if, if the stakes weren't so high and if life and death weren't involved, it's comical that human rights is often used as a reason, as a support for abortion because that's exactly the point 
It's human rights. <laughs> it's life there. And if that's life in the womb, we have an obligation morally, spiritually, biblically to support that, to protect that. And if we don't, we can neither say we're civilized nor a society if we fall down at that point. It's a conviction. You know, all through your life, you and I are going to feel the pull of this culture away from commitment to Jesus. All through our lives, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in family, whether it's in relationships, or whether it's just in general, we're going to feel a pull away from what is true and away from what is right. And it will be so much easier to choose the easy wrong rather than the hard right. But what Daniel shows us is that not only should honoring God be a conviction, not a preference, but when we do, there are others that are watching that are influenced as well. What would change in your life today if you chose to honor God across the board in your life? Dads, what would change if you chose to do that? Moms, what would change in your life if you chose to honor God across the spectrum of your life? How would your conscience be different if you chose to honor God? How much more peace would you have if you chose to honor God across the board in your life? In fact, I would say, what is it maybe in your life right now that is threatening your honoring of God? What is it that's keeping you from honoring God in every area of your life? And what maybe needs to go so that you can honor him? the way Daniel and many of the others did in Scripture and the way God's calling you to do. And by the way, when we think about, boy, this is a hard hill to die on standing for God, just remember the only reason we can do it is because God stood on a hill first. Right? In fact, he died on it when Jesus gave his life for us. Why? Because you having a relationship and me having a relationship restored from sin to forgiveness required it. And it was so important to Jesus that at the point of crucifixion, he didn't say, you know what, I think maybe not. This is all just a preference. No, he said, no, this is my conviction. And he died on that hill for us to have a shot at knowing him. If you've never given your life to Jesus, man, the greatest peace, the greatest hope, the greatest joy, the greatest life you'll ever experience is when you ask him to forgive you of your sin and to take over and he'll do it. And if you've already done it, understand that you don't stand alone, that he stood first for you. And when you feel the weight of the consequences and when you feel the pull of that culture, if you just decide I'm going to honor him, no matter the cost, this is a hill on which to die, honoring the Lord, that with that comes great, great reward. Let's pray. Lord, this world needs to see you. It needs to see you badly. Lord, we are not perfect. They don't need to see us. This world doesn't need to see us for who we are. But in your economy and your plan and the way you do things, what often happens is, is that you present yourself and you show yourself through the lives of those who know you. Daniel was a reflection of you, Lord, to such a degree <clears throat> that a godless king ultimately acknowledged you as the one true living God. And Lord, all around us are people who don't know you, they don't acknowledge you, many of whom maybe have never even really heard about how to have a relationship with you in the first place. And how ironic that you put people like us who have our own issues and we often fall so far short. How ironic that you put us as jars of clay <laughs> to be the very manner in which you present yourself so that others can hear of you and see what you look like 
as we follow you and you're demonstrated through our lives. Lord, may we as followers of Jesus, may we as a church be faithful to stand on the things that reflect you. And Lord, may we be faithful to follow your path and to go against the flow of this culture, not follow the way of the world and go against the flow of you. Lord, may we do it with a spirit of love and compassion. May we do it with hope and with joy. May we do it with a spirit that reflects you and yet at the same time stands on what is true and right so that people will see a difference in us and want what we have that we've only really experienced by your grace. And so, Lord, thank you for your work in us. Thank you that when we're in a position where we can, in a way, be a bit of a hero because we honor you, may we quickly understand that you're the ultimate hero. And may you get all the glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.